Well, just about every culture throughout history has used special titles for identifying people. We, we rely on proper names to distinguish between individuals, but titles come in as an effective way to determine or identify a person's status, class, or role in society. As some societies have titles of nobility, like the British with their dukes and earls and barons. America, we don't have noble titles, but we mostly identify people by their role. Many people find their identity in their occupation, and they want to be known as such. So a long-standing police officer in the community might be called Sarge. The head of the fire department is Chief. The pilot of an airplane is called Captain. Politicians insist on being called by their titles, congressman, senator, mayor, so on. My dad was a doctor, and people always called him doctor. He did not insist on being called doctor, but that's just what they called him even after retirement. On the religious front, the same goes for the title reverend. Many denominational churches, and their leaders, are called reverends. And I didn't grow up in any religious tradition, so it all seemed a little strange to me to, to call someone reverend or be called reverend, especially since it literally means a person who is to be revered. I think we can just stick with revering the Lord, so please don't call me reverend. If anything, I'll accept Grandmaster Pastor. <laughs> but you get the point here. All cultures throughout history have come up with all sorts of special titles to distinguish people by rank or status or class or role. We have many titles in our culture. The ancient Romans had many titles. The ancient Jews had their own titles. I just bring this up to pose the question. Like when Jesus came on the scene, what kind of titles did he have? What were his special titles, and what did they say about him? Many of our titles are just assigned to us by society, and in that regard, Jesus had several. People called him rabbi, which means teacher. They called him lord, normally in the sense as an honorific title, meaning master. And they even called him prophet, as they recognized the power of God in him. But I also want to know how Jesus spoke of himself. You know, what titles did he choose for himself? How did he want to be known? If Jesus had a business card, what would it say on it? You would expect it to say Messiah. Right? He is Jesus the Christ. Christ is not his last name, in case you didn't know. It is a title, meaning the Messiah, the anointed one. He's that long-awaited son of David, full of all of its Old Testament significance. You'd also expect his business card to say son of God. That does not communicate he's God's progeny or creation. Rather, it is a divine title. He's God come down, Emmanuel, God with us. These are Christ's most important titles, and we're meant to recognize him as such, as the divine Messiah. John, for example, that's the whole reason he writes his gospel. He gives all these signs of Jesus, and then he says at the end, John 20, 31, all these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. But what makes this discussion so interesting is that Jesus himself rarely used the titles Christ and Son of God to speak of himself. Later in his ministry, when his disciples confessed it, he always affirmed it because he is the Christ and the Son of God. But he's often seen putting a lid on these titles, telling people not to tell others he is the Messiah. Makes us wonder, why would he do that? Jesus himself appears very limited and strategic in his use of these superlative titles, Christ, Son of God. Instead, he reserved another title for himself. And this was his favorite title by far. This is how he wanted to be known. And there's not even a close second how he consistently spoke of himself. If he had a business card describing his, his time on earth, it would say this, Jesus the Son of Man. The Son of Man. When people learn that, it, it might catch them off guard. This was the title Jesus used for himself the most by far. But I think it's the title Christians understand the least by far. Son of Man is used over 80 times in the Gospels, every time but two coming from the lips of Jesus. The other two is just quoting Jesus. This is how Jesus almost exclusively spoke of himself. No one else ever addressed Jesus as the Son of Man. It's how he spoke of himself. Outside the Gospels, this title is used 
two other time, or four other times, but still always in reference to Jesus. Now, already, this should make us pause and ask some, some questions. Like, what does this title mean? And why did Jesus favor it so much? Why, why is he using it so much for himself? What is it meant to say about him? I wonder, do you know? Because you answer those questions right now. These questions are extra practical for us because we are ordinarily going through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings, and Matthew is the one who records Jesus' use of this title the most, again, by far. It shows up 32 times in Matthew alone. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 identifies Jesus as the son of David. That is his messianic title. Matthew 1 also identifies Jesus as the son of God. He's born of the Holy Spirit. Matthew certainly is presenting Jesus to us as the Christ and the Son of God, of course. But when we see Jesus grow up, start ministering in this gospel, the title that always comes from his lips is the Son of Man. This is something we recently encountered in Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, a little while ago. Jesus said, was saying, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he was talking about himself. He's not more. Now we're talking third person. Like, why are you talking about yourself in the third person? Why this title? But then we saw it again for the second time last week, going through Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, where he claims that the, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. But we were left to wonder, like, what does he mean to communicate by this title, the Son of Man? You know, all the ancient creeds and confessions of the early church required believers to confess Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. Not a single one required believers to confess him as the Son of Man. Like, why not? What, what are we missing? What, what are we not seeing here? Now, at least for our purposes in studying Matthew, we need to know. And it's been my intention to try and squeeze in a little study on Jesus as the Son of Man while we're going through these passages, but I've never quite had the time so I figured that before we move on in Matthew, we'd just take a one-week pause and just do a larger, more significant study on this chief title of Jesus that he chose for himself, the Son of Man. I mean, don't you want to know Jesus as he wanted to be known? And don't you want to know why he chose this title for himself? What is it meant to show us? We need to search the scriptures to find out this is part of our worship and appreciation, even discipleship. Because we're following him, and he's the Son of Man. So, we're going to do a little special study this morning on Jesus as the Son of Man. We're going to organize it under three questions. So, you can follow along. Three questions. <clears throat> the first would be, how did the Old Testament use this title? How did the Old Testament use the title, Son of Man? So, it's a good place to start. You know, like, what is the Old Testament background to this term? Son of Man is found in the Old Testament, and it's used in three different ways. So we'll quickly go over those three ways the Old Testament used Son of Man. The first was simply as a, as a Jewish idiom meaning man. Son of Man was another way of saying human. Like Numbers 23, verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. The Hebrew idiom son of means one who shares in something or stands in close relationship to something. So a son of disobedience is someone who is disobedient. A son of perdition is someone who is destined for perdition. A son of man is a man. It may sound redundant, but it's often used in Hebrew uh, poetic parallelism, which for the Jews, it was all about saying the same thing in two different ways. Like Psalm chapter 8, verse 4. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Just another way of saying man. So the first usage is very simply as an idiom for humans. It's, it's what you expect. Like what is a son of a man? A man. That's what it means. Now, secondly, son of man was the main title used for the prophet Ezekiel. The second way this, this title is used in the Old Testament is a title for specifically Ezekiel. It's not used of other prophets, but God himself used it extensively 
for Ezekiel, so much that it really stands out. We're talking 90 plus times God called Ezekiel the son of man. Ezekiel was a priest taken into captivity in Babylon, and he was chosen to receive many lofty visions of God's glory. That's what the opening chapter is, Ezekiel chapter 1. It's this overwhelming vision of heavenly majesty followed up by a vision of God's glory. In response to that, Ezekiel falls on his face, and then he hears God speaking to him. And God says, it's now chapter 2, verse 1, Son of man, stand on your feet, that I may speak with you. And from then on, he just keeps calling him son of man. Why does God address Ezekiel as son of man? Most rightly, I think, take this title to refer to Ezekiel's humanness. Again, the emphasis on his humanity. This depicts his human weakness and frailty in contrast to all the divine glory and majesty he's seeing. He's, he's just a man. He's just a puny son of man. But God's going to use him. God's going to use this mere man. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, he stands him on his feet. The next verse Ezekiel says that as God spoke to me, the Spirit entered me, that God was going to use this mere Son of Man to deliver his message, a message of heavenly glory to his people. And although this title, Son of Man, for Ezekiel, you can see it's not, it's not a title of exaltation. It's a title of humiliation, humanity, frailty. That's what it communicates. Now, that is not the case for how this title is used in Daniel. This is the third way the Old Testament uses the title Son of Man. It's in Daniel chapter 7, and it becomes an exalted title. This is the most significant Old Testament usage, so I think we better turn there. Open your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7. We'll start there, Daniel chapter 7. We'll get to Matthew soon enough. Daniel was a prophet, and he was a contemporary of Ezekiel, nearly the same age. He likewise lived in exile in Babylon after the destruction of the temple, and God used Daniel to reveal the next stages of his redemptive plan. With this in mind, Daniel 7 is very significant. Daniel receives this vision of four beasts, paralleling the vision he had in chapter 2. We don't have to worry what these are. Later in the chapter, he receives the interpretation. So we're told what these represent. These four beasts represent four kings with their kingdoms. That would be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. These kings are men, but they're called beasts because that's, that's how they're acting. And they oppress God's people. You have to keep in mind the wider context, Daniel chapters 2 through 7, we see Israel in exile, and they're facing all this pressure to worship the king of Babylon, or you might say, worship the first beast, as if he were God most high. Literally, he wants to be worshiped as if he is God most high. That would be a grave mistake, because the king of Babylon is not God most high, and though these beasts rage, the eternal kingdom belongs to God most high and all his people all who remain faithful to him despite their suffering, which is the main message of Daniel anyway. But you speaking of these, these four beasts who are attacking God's people throughout the ages, the last one stands out in many ways. It takes on a distinct form. He says throughout the chapter, it comes to have ten horns, which represent a ten-king confederation. And after that, it says another little horn rises up and subdues them. This figure is elsewhere known as the Antichrist, and he violently rages against God and his people. We know from later in Daniel and the book of Revelation that that during his reign, there will be once again this immense pressure on God's people to worship him, worship this beast as if he is God. But that too would be a fatal mistake because this beast's doom is sealed. Daniel sees in his vision, verse 8, how this beast almost devours God's people. But then after that, he sees this vision of the heavenly courts. That's verses 9 and 10. God's not caught off guard by any of these beasts who are threatening his people. Rather, finally, the time has come for God to judge. Verses 9 through 10 depict God as the Ancient of Days, 
taking his seat on his throne. He's ready to pour out judgment on this beast, this last one. There are striking similarities between this depiction of God and the one in Ezekiel chapter 1, by the way. But in all the messages that God's people don't need to fear, just remain faithful despite their suffering, because when the Ancient of Days assumes his judgment seat, like no one's going to stand. The beast himself will be slain, verse 11, thrown alive into the fire, the burning fire, verse 11. That's not the end of the vision. I want to set your attention now to verses 13 and 14. You'd think that'd be the end. But the end of this vision is verses 13 and 14. And so let's go ahead and read that. He says right after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's where the vision ends, before the angel interprets it for him. What does Daniel see here? He sees one like a son of man, and that's our term. There it is. What does it mean? Well, the term itself, again, just refers to a human being. Is this figure a man? We don't know this. Notice Daniel says he sees one like a son of man, meaning he's seeing in this vision a figure that looks like a man. There's a human appearing figure there coming in the clouds of heaven, being presented before the Ancient of Days. That's what he's seeing, a man being presented. Someone looks like a man being presented before the Ancient of Days. But what is said of the Son of Man makes it clear, like he can't just be a man. Verse 13 says he rides on the clouds. That's elsewhere seen to be a function of God. Psalm 104 verse 3, God makes the clouds his chariot. This may indicate the heavenly origin of this figure. But specifically, we know here, he's given privileges elsewhere that are seen to be reserved for God alone. He's given dominion, authority, glory, and then the universal worship and service of all men on the earth to lead an everlasting kingdom. Like this human-looking figure sure seems pretty transcendent. Like, what do we make of this? There's obviously a lot in this prophecy in this chapter, but I want to point out one thing here, this, this intended dichotomy. Here you have all these kingdoms that are opposed to God's rule, and they're all being led by who? By beasts. Now, really, they're just sons of men also, but they're called beasts, depicting their, their sin, their rebellion, their grotesque. It's what sin does to the image of God in man. They're, they're more like beasts. Meanwhile, The eternal kingdom of God is ruled by who? Not a beast, by a man, a true man, a son of man. Because he's the only one found worthy. Dominion over the earth is not going to belong to any of these beasts, but to one like a son of man. He will conquer the evil world system. He will banish all the beasts. He will exercise divine authority over God's kingdom, universally and eternally. We have to say again, this this Son of Man figure, he appears like a man in this vision, but he cannot be a mere man. There there has to be more than meets the eye to what Daniel is seeing. This figure is not humble, weak, and frail like Ezekiel. He is exalted, supreme, and looks divine. Now, there are no other prophetic or messianic references to the Son of Man in the Old Testament. So Daniel 7 is it. This is the one verse. But it it rightly stands out so much that when Jesus arrived, when he wanted to speak of his return, what verse do you think he quoted? He quoted this right here, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In reference to himself, that already tells us a whole lot. Now there's more, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. I think that's enough for the Old Testament foundation to the term. Now let's Let's jump into the New Testament answer, second question now. Second question, how did Jesus use the title? 
how did the Old Testament use the title? Now, you really want to know, how did Jesus use the title? And right away, I want to dispel this simplistic assumption that many people make. They understand Son of God to be his divine title. And it is. It is a title of deity. They understand Son of David to be his messianic title. And it is. And so they, they wonder, they assume, okay, Son of Man, well, obviously, that what's left? It's his human title. And that is only half true. Given that Old Testament precedent, yes, this title does communicate humanity. We, we don't dispute that. It does imply Jesus was a true human, and we affirm his full humanity. But it's far too simplistic to say that the title Son of Man was merely one of his humanity and humiliation. As you can sense from Daniel, it also seems to be a title of deity and exaltation. In fact, we'll learn from all of his titles, Son of Man becomes this all-encompassing title that includes his deity and authority, his humiliation and his exaltation, his return and his reign. Why don't we just let Jesus himself define for us what he means by this title? And that's what he does. When you study all the instances, those 80 times when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, you find three distinct categories of usage. So, kind of subpoints here, three ways Jesus spoke of himself as the Son of Man. Three categories of usage. So now let's look at these. First, you have the earthly Son of Man. The earthly Son of Man. And first, you know, right off the bat, Jesus uses this term, Son of Man, as a means of self-identification. It's how he talks about himself in the third person all the time. We have John 9.35, after he heals that blind man, he later asks him, he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man replied, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus then, then said, He is the one who is talking with you. It's like very cryptic. Why don't you just come out and say it? <laughs> but this was just his favorite third-person way to describe himself throughout his ministry. We'll learn why at the end, but this is just how it is. He spoke of himself all the time as the Son of Man. Matthew 13, by the way, go ahead and open to Matthew. You can flip over to Matthew 12. We'll get there shortly. Matthew 13, 37, he said, you know, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Talking about himself. Jesus came to earth to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Also, Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Where he came on a mission, and that mission was to gather his lost sheep. All right, so he has an earthly ministry, and he uses the title to describe his earthly ministry all the time. Now, as we've learned in Matthew, that earthly ministry did not involve luxury, opulence, that you might expect from a king. Rather, in contrast to his former heavenly glory, while on earth, what did we learn in Matthew 8.20? Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't even have a home. The earthly ministry of Jesus was one of humility, yes. Like Philippians 2.5 reminds us that though he existed in the form of God, he took on the form of a man and was found in appearance as a man. But don't let his human appearance fool you. He, he is a man, but more than a man. And this is why we see Jesus also associate this title, Son of Man, with his divine authority, which he still possesses. Though veiled in humanity, he still possesses this divine authority. We saw this back in Matthew 9, 6, right? The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. That, that is something only God can do. Well, also, it's something the Son of Man can do. The Son of Man also has authority over the Sabbath. Matthew 12, real quick, you can look at verse 8. That's where he says straight up, we'll get there shortly or one of these days, but Matthew 12, verse 8 says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is an extreme claim, especially given how they thought of the Sabbath. I mean, the Sabbath was a divine institution ordained by God, governed by God. Man, man can't revise it or change it, but Jesus claims total authority to rule over this Sabbath. He's the same Lord who made it. And keep in mind, both of these sayings 
in context, were preceded by challenges to Christ's authority. But Jesus lets it be known that as the Son of Man, he's not just a man. He has the appearance of a man, but he's actually someone more. Now, we already get hints that the Son of Man is not just a title of his earthly humiliation, but also his heavenly exaltation. The Son of Man comes humbly to earth, but he still retains his divine authority. And so, you know, it leaves us to wonder, like, why is he here? Why has this Son of Man come to earth, taken on human form? We just read he came to seek and save the lost. He came to provide salvation for his people. But we learn that that, in turn, could only happen one way. And so the second way he speaks of the Son of Man would be the executed Son of Man. The executed Son of Man. Jesus begins his ministry using Son of Man to refer to his earthly ministry in a variety of ways, but only after Peter confesses him as the Christ and Son of God does he begin to reveal other dimensions of his role as the Son of Man. And that would include his suffering, his rejection, and his death. The Son of Man is going to be executed. Go to Matthew 16. You have to see this for yourself. One of the most critical passages in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 16, we'll read 13 through 17. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. I mean, he had to be someone great. But then, verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? So, again, he's clearly talking about himself. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is the right confession. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Son of God, divine. And that confession came by divine revelation. The Father, through the Spirit, showed that to Peter. But we learn, though, who is the Son of Man? You see how Jesus himself puts his identity as the Christ and Son of God under this title, Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? He is the Christ and Son of God. You can see how the Son of Man title captures the full nature of his identity. But now, here, only after this confession, only after this point, does Jesus start to reveal more about his mission as the Son of Man. Namely, that he came to suffer and die. Look down at verse 21. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. The Son of Man, he came, and he is going to be executed. I mean, can this be? This is so unbelievable, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. But this, this must happen. This was the will of the Father. How else can the Son of Man seek and save the lost, but by dying in their place for their sins? What's the other way? And after this, Jesus continues to reveal his mission, the suffering and rejection that will come his way as the Son of Man, several times throughout Matthew. Let's look at one more significant one, Matthew 20. He reveals many more times what's coming, but here's one. Matthew 20, verses 18, 19. He says a little while later, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. Here we, he's, we see the rejection of Jesus as the Son of Man intensifies. Because now he's even handed over and tortured by the Gentiles. That's ridiculous. He's even going to be crucified, how a common criminal was executed by the Romans. Again, like, can it be? 
Yes, it has to be. This is the only way. End of this chapter is another a critical verse in Matthew where Jesus reveals that his death will be a vicarious sacrifice for his people. Matthew 20, 28. He says that the Son of Man uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to lay down his life, and that meant execution. Now, so far, we've seen how Jesus puts his identity as the Christ and Son of God under this bigger title, Son of Man. And here he also puts his identity as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 under this title, Son of Man, his role. Think of Philippians 2 again. Philippians 2, it continues, verse 8, speaking of Jesus being found in appearance as a man, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Son of Man must die. Now, look, that's not the end of it, though. There's one common thread in all the predictions Jesus gives of what will happen to the Son of Man, namely that he will die, but then what? He will be raised up on the third day. They kind of glossed over that part, but every time he says he'll be raised up on the third day. His suffering and execution will give way to victory and glory. This is the real last word, and this now is the dominant sense that Jesus gives to the title Son of Man. Third, the eschatological Son of Man. And we will check for spelling on the test. The eschatological Son of Man. Or if that troubles you, just put end times Son of Man. Right, the earthly, the executed, but then the eschatological, the exalted Son of Man. Who is Jesus, this Son of Man? He's God who took on the likeness of man and came to earth. And there he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross to save his people, Philippians 2. But it doesn't end there because that death wasn't a defeat. It was his crowning victory. He accomplished his mission, proved by his ensuing resurrection. And this establishes his right to rule as God's mediator king over all creation. And so Philippians 2, 9 continues and says, For this reason also God highly exalted on him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You don't have to turn that. We're going to say in Matthew, but you know, we get another heavenly throne room vision in Revelation chapter 5. It is very reminiscent of Ezekiel's vision and Daniel's vision. And we see Jesus, this figure, he's the only one found worthy to take this scroll from the Father and really reclaim the earth. Why is Jesus alone found worthy? Well, like they sing in Revelation 5.9. They say of him, For you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is who Jesus is. He's the exalted Son of Man. He came from heaven to earth to suffer, to die for his people, to redeem them from the clutches of sin. But he is now resurrected and ascended in glory. And to him, all rule and authority has been given. Now, that's still not the end of the matter, meaning it's obvious to all that his rule is still opposed. The nations are still raging against him. Not every knee has yet bowed to him in submission as Lord. We would say that this exalted Son of Man's kingdom has been inaugurated, present in his people, the church, but it has not yet arrived in its fullness. He has yet to exercise his full right to rule over his enemies, and that will take place when he returns. Scripture consistently connects the fullness of his kingdom rule to his return, the return of the Son of Man. And make no mistake, the Son of Man is returning. He will return to judge, to reign, and to rule over an eternal kingdom. And this is the most significant sense Jesus gave to the title, Son of Man. It's a title of his exaltation as this eschatological ruler, this coming king and judge of the world. 
Back to Matthew 16. Peter confesses Jesus, the Son of Man, that he is the Christ and the Son of God. And after that, Jesus first reveals the extent of his earthly humiliation, like, hey, the Son of Man is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's going to be executed. But don't fear. That ensures his victory. And later in the chapter is also when he starts to reveal this, things like this, verse 27, Matthew 16. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. He's not a, a Savior who stays dead. It's no coincidence that immediately this is followed by the transfiguration where a few disciples get a glimpse of that heavenly glory. Now go to Matthew 24. Later in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks of his second coming after the tribulation. Like what he says in verse 30, Matthew 24, verse 30. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 30, it says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What does that remind you of? Diana reminds you of Daniel. Right Here is the Son of Man riding on the clouds, coming with power and glory to finish all rebellion on earth. And none can oppose him. No, no beast can stand against him. Certainly not the last one. The book of Revelation really picks this up. Now, the parallels between Revelation and Daniel are extreme. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, speaking of Jesus, he is coming with the clouds. Who? Revelation 1.13, one like a son of man. And John's vision now is very much like Ezekiel and Daniel's vision. Revelation details this exalted Savior's last act. A big warning is given in Revelation 14. It says, To anyone who worships the beast, he will drink the wine of the wrath of God. And it says it's mixed to full strength. And guess who pours out that judgment? Jesus is described in Revelation 14, 14, where John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. That doesn't sound like buddy Jesus. He is the cosmic judge. The climax comes in Revelation 19, which describes the return of Jesus, and he faces the final beast. You have this Antichrist figure throughout Revelation. He's called the beast. It is the same beast from Daniel 7, the fourth one. Revelation 19.19 says that all the kings of the earth come with him, under him. And it says, and all their armies come to make war against the coming Christ. But there's no war. There's no battle. Revelation 19, the beast is effortlessly seized and thrown alive into the lake of fire. And it says the rest were killed by the sword coming out of Christ's mouth, indicating he just speaks a word and all of his enemies are vanquished into eternal judgment. And at that point, what was anticipated in Revelation eleven fifteen comes to pass. As the angels declare, Revelation eleven fifteen, they say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And as the elders worship, Revelation eleven seventeen, they say, we give thanks to you, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. They only say that as Christ returns. And finally, the kingdom will come in its fullness with the presence of the king. And who is this king? He's the son of man. You know, just to wrap things up here, if you're still in Matthew 24, throughout the Olivet Discourse, you get a sense of what the coming of the son of man will be like. Verse 27, it will be like lightning meaning sudden. Verse 30, it will come with signs in the sky. Verse 37, it will catch the world off guard, like in the days of Noah. Verse 44, it will come at an hour you do not expect. Be ready, because when he comes, he comes to judge. Just like he says in Matthew 25, verse 31. Same all the discourse. 
says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And for us, for his people who, who follow him by faith, we don't fear any of this. There's no fear when it comes to his return. We pray, come, come quickly. We are longing for his return because we know that means receiving our share in this eternal inheritance, which is just grace upon grace. But it's like Jesus said to his apostles, Matthew 19, verse 28. He said to them about their reward, Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me, he says, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's just like I said in Daniel 7, that when this Son of Man comes, his people will possess his eternal kingdom. That glory has not come yet, but it's fixed. It's certain. And that's how Jesus thought of it. One last critical passage, Matthew 26. You have to go there. Matthew 26. Most significantly, when Jesus was put on trial, the high priest was trying to obtain testimony against him, but none was found. And so in desperation, he puts Jesus under oath, and he says, verse 63, he says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. He wants to know if Jesus is claiming to be the Christ and the Son of God. Are you claiming to be Messiah and divine? And how does Jesus respond? He has affirmed both of those titles before to his disciples. But now that it is finally time for him to ascend the cross, he can speak this plainly. He is the divine Messiah. But listen to how he puts it, verse 64. It says, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. In other words, yes. Then he says, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And after this, it's enough. They charge Jesus with blasphemy. He's killed because of this. The whole trial, he was silent. He wasn't saying anything. If he just kept his mouth shut, he could have maybe escaped. But, you know, this, this had to happen. This was the time. It was time to speak. And lo and behold, he chooses to quote Daniel 7. You can see how he combines the essence of his identity as the Christ and the Son of God, under this title, the Son of Man. And he lets them know that while they think they're defeating him by putting him to death, they're actually handing him the victory. Because what they didn't realize that in God's plan, the cross was his throne. It was the means by which he would reign and rule over all. <clears throat> so I wonder, do you have any idea this title, Son of Man, meant so much I hope this study has helped you grow in your understanding and appreciation of this title, but more than that, of what it says of our Savior. What have we learned? That according to Jesus, this favorite title was, was quite the umbrella, and it captured the essence of his, the various stages of his coming, from his earthly humility to his vicarious death to his coming glory. It also captured the essence of of his person as the Christ and the Son of God. Amazingly, when you think about it, just about every essential part of who Jesus is and what he came to do is, is attached to this title, Son of Man. If there's one way we need to think of him, it's as the Son of Man. Now, our time is nearly up, but I want to give a few minutes to a last question. This will be quick, but number three, I want to address this. Why did Jesus use this title? Why did Jesus use the title, Son of Man? Like I said before, when Jesus shows up, we expect him to use the title Messiah, Christ. That's who he is. It's who the Jews were hoping for. And that title is loaded with lots of Old Testament significance. So why didn't he use that title? Why did he instead tell people, don't tell people, I'm the Christ? And he instead, he opts for this obscure title, Son of Man. But therein lies the answer. It is true that the title Christ had tons of Old Testament significance, but it also had tons of cultural baggage 
and nationalistic associations. The Jewish leaders had, had turned it into something else. Messiah became a politically charged term full of misunderstanding, misconception. And they were looking for a political ruler to come and deliver them from the Romans and serve their interests. It's true the Messiah will be a conquering king at his second advent, but they lost entirely the notion that he first had to die for the sins of his people, Isaiah 53. And they lost sight of their real threat, which wasn't the Romans. It was their own sins, which separated them from their God. You may recall in John 6, 15, that the crowds, after seeing the miracles of Jesus, especially the feeding of the 5,000, it said they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. I mean, that's a Messiah they can get behind. He feeds us. But that's not why Jesus came. So look, Jesus could not begin by advertising he was the Messiah. The, the title had too much baggage. It was too politically charged and misunderstood. Likewise, the title Son of God was hypercharged. It was rightly seen as a divine title, but the people could not accept that yet. I mean, Jesus would have been killed for blasphemy before the time if he came off from day one saying he's the Son of God. But that is not the case with this title, Son of Man. At the time, Son of Man was not a widely recognized messianic title. Its one reference in Daniel 7 was unknown to most people. The meaning of the Son of Man was veiled. It's like the crowds wonder in John 12, 34, and they say, who is this Son of Man? They don't know what to make of this title either. But that afforded Jesus the best of both worlds. He could use a title that actually had a rich Old Testament significance, but only to those with eyes to see. He could reveal much of his true nature while not drawing undue controversy before the time. The title Son of Man is not inherently offensive because, like, who isn't a Son of Man? All people are, in a sense, but to those with ears to hear, he was communicating his exalted role in history and redemption. And furthermore, since this title was a blank slate in the minds of most, it allowed Jesus to define it. I mean, just forget all the baggage with the title Christ. Jesus could infuse his own meaning into this title, Son of Man. And that's what he did, as we've seen, little by little, expanding Son of Man to include his earthly humility, his vicarious death, and then his coming glory. And by the end, this one title contained the full picture of him as the Christ and Son of God, and as the suffering servant, the, the returning king. And all this title was the most effective way for Jesus to both reveal and conceal who he really is. It enabled him to minister undercover on earth. <clears throat> to the average crowd member, son of man means nothing more than a mere man. But to those with faith, they would start to understand that the son of man is the God-man who came from heaven to earth to live, to die, to rise, to ascend, to judge, to reign, to rule as he returns. It sounds like then you, you had better follow this Son of Man. And that has to be our clear takeaway from, from this study in God's Word. This morning, through the Word, we've gained our own type of vision of the Son of Man, haven't we? Our response should be the same to any vision of the Son of Man, be it Ezekiel's or Daniel's or John's. And that is to bow down and to worship him. Where you see the glory and the supremacy of Jesus in who he is and what he came to do, and you worship him in adoration. He is worth your worship, your life. And part of that worship includes following him. And today we see him in the scriptures. You realize one day you will see him with your eyes. One day every eye will see the Son of Man. Just you ever think about that? Like one day you will see the Son of Man. And you're not going to see a baby in the manger. You're not going to see a man on a cross. You will see an exalted king. What's going to matter on that day? Probably none of the things you worry about every day. What will matter is if you are found with him or against him. Do you follow him or reject him? Do you confess him or deny him? Heed the warning that he gave about those who turn away from him in this life Mark 8, 38, Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And right now, though you don't see him with your eyes, you must see him by faith and count him worthy of your life and follow him. And right now, he calls those of us who do follow him in this life to identify with him in his earthly suffering and humiliation. For those who do so, and who, like those in Daniel, remain faithful to the end, well, they will identify with his glory, with his exaltation when he returns. This is why he said in Luke 6, 22-23, or 22-23, he said, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. It was Augustine who wrote that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that you who are sons of men might become sons of God. This is the mystery, grace, and glory of God, and you find it in Christ, the Son of Man. Let's praise him in worship this morning and pray together. Father in heaven, we do exalt you in your name through your son Christ, this risen, ascended, glorified king, the son of man. We thank you for your word, which, which gives us truth in a powerful way. You've given us your word to give us a vision of you and your son, that we might see him with eyes of faith for who he really is. That includes his earthly humiliation, his suffering, his death, but also his resurrection, ascension, and common glory. And we do long for that. We long for Christ to return. We are told to pray, come, and come quickly. And we know that's our heart's desire because that will mean uh, the the finish line of our salvation, the finish line of uh, the consummation of the age and living in the presence of this king forever. We do long for that. May we be found faithful until that day to fulfill our mission, make disciples of all the nations, live as light, salt and light in this world, but cling to him, to not fail, forsake him, or fall away, This Son of Man is worthy of our lives, of our witness, of our worship. May we give it all to him. It's all from him and for him as we consider this morning. It's to him as well. As we pray, to him be all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.